All right, well, good morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take them out and open up to the book of Philippians as a church. We are um, going to be spending the next couple of months walking through this, this really wonderful epistle, this letter by, that was written by Paul um, to the church at Philippi. Um, a reminder that we do have available kind of an a, a interesting, unique study tool uh, available at the, at the Welcome Center if you're interested. It's just the, the letter of, of Philippians. Um, it's, got te- it's got the text on one side, and the other side it's just got lines. It's just a great way to, to journal, to study, to read um, the Bible. And so these are available out there. They're, I think, like a $5 donation. But if you don't have that on you, this one's on us. Feel free to grab it. Um, this morning, specifically, we're going to be looking at verses, uh, the second half of verse 18, and we're going to read through 26. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 to 26. And just as a as a general reminder, the way we do children's ministry here at Parkview East is that every other week we offer um, full child care, or child, Sunday school all the way up through junior high. Um, on those off weeks, which is this week, the, the kids stay in here with us. And as a people, we see a lot of value in that for, for children to know what it's like to be a part of a gospel-centered, Christ-centered church um, and to know what it's like to sit through. And so as a result, there, there might be some distractions, some disruptions throughout this morning service, and that's okay. Um, we're a family, and, and, and we're okay with that. So just, just as a reminder, next week children's ministry will be happening um, as usual. So this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider these words this morning, we are completely and utterly dependent on your spirit to show us your truth, Father. And so I pray that you would send him now, that he would show us your son, Father, that you may be exalted and glorified. Father, I pray that these truths that you have given us, these words that you have given us, that you have spoken, Father, that for us that they would be words that would define us as a people. Lord, that they would bring significance and meaning and purpose in our life. Lord, and I pray, Father, that you would allow us to use these words, not just as a way we define ourselves, but also as a way that we understand and love one another. Father, we are in need. I am in need of you right now. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, if you, if you are like me, you probably love stories of people, maybe throughout history, maybe people currently, who have faced tremendous 
setbacks, obstacles, adversity in life, but have somehow risen above, pushed through, overcome, made a significant contribution to humanity, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Don't you love those stories? They make great films. They make wonderful, wonderful books. And our history pages are just littered with examples of people who have done just that. Setback after setback, they have risen above and made a contribution to humanity. I just think of last weekend we celebrated Dr. King's life and his legacy. And Dr. King was a man who faced setback after setback after setback. Yet he rose above. He pushed through. Dr. King recalls that there was a period of time when he was thick in the civil rights movement where some 40 calls a day would flood his house, threatening his life and his family's life. Bombs thrown on his porch. He, even had, he was even stabbed before he was eventually, his life was eventually taken, right? But yet, setback after setback, tragedy after tragedy, Dr. King rose up and made a contribution to humanity. Think of Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt's another president who I've been learning a little bit about lately. He's an individual who, although he was born in tremendous wealth and privilege, he had health conditions that really, you know, for a long time, they weren't even sure if this kid was going to make it, right? He had a tre tremendously difficult time with his health. And even those adversities that he faced young, early on in his life, those things were God used to help shape and form him and, and really give him a unique calling, Right? We think of Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, person after person we could go on. Recently I learned about a woman by the name of Madam C.J. Walker. Now I'd never heard of Madam C.J. Walker until just this week, and Madam C.J. Walker was a significant individual. She was born in the late 1800s, and she would die in the early 1900s. She was born in the South. She was an African-American woman, born in complete poverty. And she was a, what she did was she did laundry for individuals. So people would drop off their laundry at her house, and she would wash their clothes and give them back. And that's how she provided for her and her family. Right? Well, during this time, she, her hair began to fall out because of the stresses and just the living conditions that she found herself in. Her hair began to fall out. And because she was involved in some of these chemicals that she used to make soap and to clean clothes, she eventually um, found a treatment that she could apply to her scalp that would stop the falling out of her hair. Well, being the brilliant woman that she was, she made this in mass quantities, bottled it up, and then went door to door to door selling this concoction. Right? And it wasn't that it, she labeled it as sort of a hair replenisher, but really what it was was a, a scalp soother. It, it nourished the scalp. Well, eventually people saw that she was essentially a walking advertisement, that what she sold actually worked. Right? And so they began to buy this in mass quantities, and she would hire other individuals that would be door to door salesmen. Before long, I mean, just a matter of years, she had the entire country, she had women going door to door selling her product. By the time she died, I think she was in her 60s, she was. She had an estate that was worth millions of dollars, okay? Millions of dollars, and this is like 1910, right? And imagine the adversity that this African-American woman faced doing this in the South. A tremendous story. We are drawn as people, we are drawn to these stories because they provide us hope. Hope that we don't have to be defined or ultimately derailed in life by our setbacks. 
They remind us, these stories, these people remind us that our destiny doesn't have to be determined by that which works against us. As you study these people, a common theme that you will find in many of them is that they were consumed with a burning passion in life. It's almost as though no matter how much you tried to put that flame out, the passion just grew hotter and hotter and hotter. Their tragedy, they miraculously were able to turn to their ultimate triumph. Paul, the author of the letter of Philippians, knew a little something about setbacks as well. We learn, as he tells us in another portion of the New Testament, that he was whipped, he was beaten with rods, he was stoned, shipwrecked. This brother was shipwrecked. Not once, not twice, three times shipwrecked. All right? One day and one night drifting at sea. He faced tremendous dangers in his mission and in his pursuit. Night and day he was drifting at sea. He would face the dangers of robbers, of hunger and thirst and of the cold. And as he writes these very words, he does so from jail. He's imprisoned in Rome. Setback after setback. Paul knew a thing or two about setbacks. But as some of us here today can possibly relate, Paul also had a little something to say about passion and purpose in life, right? In fact, the great reason why Paul was able to overcome these setbacks and not be stopped by these setbacks, by the adversity, was because he was consumed with a burning passion, a purpose in his life. For Paul, that transcending purpose that helped him endure setback after setback is a glorious Reality that this morning in these words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 to 26, is offered to you and to me. This purpose that transcends all of life is offered to us. And it's a wonderful, wonderful possibility. It's the possibility that every single one of us wants more than anything. And that is the possibility of living a life that matters. Living a life that matters. Isn't that what you want? I know that's what I want. right? When this life is done and gone with, I want to be able to know that my life mattered. That my life made a difference. And I would give folks a great deal right now to have that assurance, that confidence that my life mattered. And this is what Paul knows. And in these, ver- in these verses this morning, what he's going to do is he's going to tell us the secret. The secret. The secret that you and I need to hear so that we can have the assurance, the confidence that our life will matter. For Paul, living that life, one that matters, one that makes a difference, one that meets the trivialities and the fragility of life with a cosmic purpose, that life for Paul meant living Christ. Living Christ. It's the message this morning is living Christ. But the question, the question before us that Paul thankfully unpacks for us, is what does it mean 
to live Christ. For many of you who may be familiar with this passage, you may, verse 21 jumps off the page right away. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a verse that many of us would want to have bannered over our life, describing who we are. For us to live is Christ. The question we'll see this morning that Paul answers is what does that mean? What does it mean to live Christ? What does that mean? We find the answer here. And essentially what Paul shows us in these verses is, first of all, Paul's ambition. And secondly, Paul's action. Paul's ambition and his action. First, Paul's ambition. Last week, in verses 12 through 18, Paul showed us his chains. If you remember last week in the passage, in in verses 12 through 18, three times throughout the passage, Paul holds up his chains. Remember, he's a man who is incarcerated for proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Right? And during this opening chapter of the letter, this, these chains could potentially serve as discouragement for people who see themselves as partnering with Paul in gospel ministry. And rather than deflecting their attention from his chains, what Paul does is he shows them his chains. Look at my chains. Look at my chains. Look at my chains. These chains, which normally would represent restraint and bondage, we saw last week for Paul, actually served to move the gospel forward, right? When they were trying to stop him and stop the gospel, they were binding him in chains. But instead, the reverse was the result. The gospel was continuing to go through, through, through the imperial guard, the brothers and sisters who saw him in chains and saw him testify to God's goodness. They grew in confidence and in boldness, and they, in turn, began to tell and preach the good news. Those chains served to advance the gospel message. In, verses, in verse 18, Paul takes a pivot. He makes a pivot. He goes from considering his current situation, that being in jail and incarcerated, to thinking about his future expectations. Look down at verse 18. And in the first part, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. His current circumstances are undesirable at best, be sure. It is not enough that he is facing persecution from those outside the church, namely the Romans, but also, you know, for the sake of Christ, but also he's being afflicted by his own brothers and sisters within the church. Somehow his imprisonment they see as their opportunity to bring affliction upon him. Now, Paul has no clue how this is going to play out. Yet he, as he contemplates his uncomfortable circumstances and his uncertain future, he is resolved to rejoice. The prospect of execution drove him to prayer, but it did not drive him to despair. The potential of execution brought this brother to his, to his knees in prayer, but it did not lead Paul to despair. Paul, remarkably, regardless of his circumstances, time after time after time, we'll see throughout the letter, Paul chooses joy. He chooses joy. Last week, we considered the unstoppable gospel. This message that Paul has given himself to can't be, won't be stopped. But as we read the letter of the Philippians, and as we read Paul and and listen to his words, we should also note, not just can the gospel not be stopped, it seems like our brother can't be stopped as well, right? 
Paul will not be stopped. He's consumed by a singular ambition. His burning passion is that his life would bring honor to Christ. That's what he tells us. Look at verse 20 and 21. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, underline this part, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. His singular ambition is to bring honor, to bring glory, to make a great big deal of God in his life. He is determined, he is confident that through his life, Christ will be exalted, will be magnified, will be honored. And if the future looks like living for Paul, remember, he does not know. He's awaiting trial. It could not look like living. But if it does, if his future looks like life, then for Paul, that means honoring Christ. Likewise, if it looks like death, Paul says, check it out, even better, even better. Why? Because our brother Paul is consumed with a singular ambition, one passion. Remarkable singular ambition, and that is to live Christ. Where does he get this from? Where does he get this? I mean, doesn't, isn't this what we want, right? That when everything around us crashes in, when the, the ground that we're standing on begins to crack and shake, and it feels like life at any way, any chance, any moment could just completely give way on us. Don't we want to still be standing? I know I do. I want to know that no matter what adversity, no matter what obstacle, no matter what challenge I face, that there will be a moment when nothing can be thrown at me and I will continue to stand strong. For Paul, that means living Christ. That's the foundation he stands on, that his life would be Christ. So where does Paul get this ambition? Where does his passion come from? I think he shows us three things, primarily in verse 19. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers, the first thing that we know is how does Paul get this passion, this, this, this unshakable ground that he stand on? Where does it come from? Paul credits the prayers of his, of his friends as giving him this passion. He's crediting the church with a great deal. He's saying that their prayers will result in his deliverance. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. One thing that should remind us of Paul's utter humanity, his complete ordinariness, so to speak, is that Paul is constantly, throughout his life and ministry, soliciting the prayers of others. Look at verses, well, I'll read them to you real quick, but you could write down the reference. Romans 15, 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, that by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 1.11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Colossians 4.3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. 
Paul believes deeply in his need for prayer and the power of prayer. Throughout his life, he's constantly coveting the prayers of other churches, of his friends. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for us? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for us? Time and time and time again, Paul wants prayer. Folks, I can think of oftentimes when missionaries, when folks who are serving full-time in ministry will send letters, will send support letters. And, you know, I think oftentimes it can almost, it can almost seem cliche to say, you know, I will support you in prayer. It's almost like it's a secondary thing, right? I, I, I can't afford anything right now in my budget to give to you, but I guess I'll pray, right? That's not, that's not Paul's attitude. Prayer is the means by which the church at Philippi participate in what Paul is enduring. The mission that God has given to Paul, advancing the gospel throughout the Roman world, throughout the entire world, Philippians are participating in that mission because they are bending their knees. They are lifting up their prayers. You know, a, a couple of weeks ago, we did some prayer cards here. I had a stack of them, and it just had a name at the very top and just some bullets underneath that. And, and I'll be the first to confess, sometimes I feel a little uncomfortable saying, would you pray for me? Okay? Like, this was a really good lesson for me. Um, we all need prayer. Every single one of us. And a very good and appropriate thing, as we were filling out those cards, would be for everyone to be thinking and praying, would you put my name on that card? Would you put my name on your card? Would you pray for me? We should covet the prayers of one another because they are powerful. God works through them. This passion for, for, for living Christ is in Paul because these people are praying for him. Right? The fire has not been put out because the Philippians are praying for him. The second thing is the presence of God. So the prayer of his friends and the presence of Christ. We see this again in verse 19. Through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul not only recognizes his need for the prayers of his friends and their delivering power, but also the provision of God. Folks, prayers have no power to work in themselves apart from the movement of the power of the spirit of Christ. Paul knows he's not alone in prison. What I love about Paul, he knows he's not there alone. He won't stand on trial alone. And if he's executed, he will not suffer and he will not die alone. He counts on the prayers of his friends and the presence of the Spirit of Christ to fill the darkness of his prison cell with the light of hope, regardless the outcome. And to turn his trial into his deliverance, again, regardless of the outcome. Third thing that I think helps to, to allow Paul to have a life that is built on this singular ambition is his personal testimony. The prayers of his friends and the presence of Christ work to produce his deliverance. The deliverance he has in sight here is not the deliverance from imprisonment or from execution. Again, Paul does not know how it's going to turn out. But he says he's certain that he will be delivered. So certainly he's not referring to his imprisonment because, again, he doesn't know if he's going to be executed. But the deliverance he has in sight is that of personal salvation and ultimate vindication before God. Now, this is remarkable. Paul, if you know who Paul is, Paul was a ridiculous Sinner. 
The chief of all sinners was Paul, right? He, he was, before he was on a mission to expand and advance the gospel, Paul's personal mission was to shut it down. And he did so by, by killing people, by approving of killing of saints, of brothers and sisters in Jesus, right? He, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? But Paul's entire life had been radically transformed. And as Paul considers, as he considers his story, his personal testimony, and how God has brought to his sinful life deliverance and, and the, the freedom of those sins and the punishment that he should pay for them, Paul is given himself to a single passion, one thing. His hope and his confidence, his deliverance are the direct results of human intercession and divine intervention. These combine to produce in Paul a passion that bleeds into every aspect of his life. For him, Christ represents the pinnacle of his life, the most cherished, satisfying reality in all of his life. Everything that Paul has is bound up in Jesus. Paul's identity is not bound up in his occupation or in his reputation. His identity, who he is, is not caught up in his family or in his friends. He isn't divine by his weaknesses or his strengths, his nationality or his personality. His past doesn't define Paul. But what does define Paul is simply Christ. Christ. Now, I know it can be tempting to look at this, um, this amazing truly amazing individual and say, well, of course, that's how, like, how else would we expect Paul to view life, right? He's writing the Bible, right? This dude's planting churches. He is a successful missionary, depending on how you define success, I guess, right? But, but of course, we would expect Paul to speak like this. He's a pastor. Come on. This is how pastors are supposed to talk. Life is Christ, Right? When we read the verse, this verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, I think the temptation can be is to think of this verse, this ambition, all-consuming passion in life, to be how we define radical Christianity. Right? Those who claim to be Christians, who take it to the nth degree, who just totally sold out for Christ. Folks, this is not a description of radical Christianity. This is a description of Christianity. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For you to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a wonderful hope, knowing that, that life is defined by Jesus and that death is, is greater. It's, you gain more by dying. Folks, if, if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, as your personal savior. If you can honestly say, how can I put Jesus at the center of my life when I haven't even given him my life? This is Paul's words this morning for you are an invitation, right? To, to have your sin and your shame, your disappointment nailed to the cross. And, and the honor and glory that comes with who Jesus is and what he has done now defines your life. It's an invitation to give your life to Jesus. Now, 
Don't get me wrong. Paul is, he's amazing. He, he doesn't give, God doesn't give us this man simply that we would marvel at him, but that we would imitate him. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, so again, Paul doesn't give us this that we can just look at him in a distance and say, wow, Paul's amazing, right? God gives us this brother so that we would follow in his footsteps, even if it means jail, even if it means death, even if it means the loss of a promotion, even if it means we don't ex get accepted for a scholarship or get accepted in an institution, right? Even if it means persecution, opposition, adversity, if it means sickness, if it means grief in life, th that we would pursue Jesus, and, and as we pursue Jesus, we would see Paul a few steps ahead of us setting the course. He wants us to follow in his footsteps. You know, when I was growing up, and still do, very much love playing basketball. Love, love playing basketball. And when I was growing up, Michael Jordan, of course, was at the top of his game, all right? And Michael Jordan was just balling constantly. And everybody wanted to be like Michael Jordan, right? Championship after championship after championship. And you would watch his jump shot. Loved about it. He has his big hands and just watching his fingers just flip that ball off of his hands. It was, it was a thing of beauty. It was so smooth, right? And, and I would remember there was a friend of mine who had, we didn't have a VCR growing up, okay? So I had to go to my friend's house to borrow the VCR to watch the VHS. Some of y'all don't. It's like alien language right there, okay? And there would be, a, a, there was these videos that would come out where, where Michael Jordan would just be like slow motion shooting and you would just watch all his moves, his dunks, his jump shot, everything. And, and we would sit there and we would, we, would, we would play the video and then we would pause. And we'd be like, you know, looking in the mirror. Okay, I got it. I got the wrinkles. Whew, okay. You know, we'd imitate it, right? And that's a good and right thing to do, right? When we, when we have Jesus, following Jesus in the Bible, we are supposed to imitate him. So to imitate Jesus, that's what it means to be a, a discipler, a follower of Jesus, is imitating him, okay? And Paul will tell us more about that in chapter 2, what it looks like. But what is really helpful for me is when I would watch that VHS, I would go out into the driveway where we had a basketball hoop, and I had a brother who was three years older than me and who was a lot better at basketball than I was. I was in junior high, he was in high school. And I would, I would know that image of Michael Jordan shooting the jump shot, but what really helped me develop as a basketball player was shooting jump shots with my brother in the parking lot. Both of us trying to imitate the same form, but I was watching him, somebody who was a few steps ahead of me, watching how his form looked, how he did. He could correct mine. Right? That's what Paul serves for us this morning. As we open up and read his words, he's saying, imitate me as I imitate Jesus, right? Paul's a wonderful example of who we should be as we aspire to be a, a follower of Jesus. Now, here's the deal. This ambition, this singular ambition and passion that Paul has in life does not just stop as an inward reality, okay? Paul helps us by understanding what does it look like to live Christ, Living Christ. You may think of it sort of abstractly, like what does that mean? What does it look like? Thankfully, Paul tells us. Look at verses 22 through 26. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Remember, Paul is facing this dilemma. Should I live? I want to live as Christ, but dying is so much better. Being with Christ in glory, that's what I really want. What should I do? 
right? Not that he's got an unhealthy desire to commit suicide, right? But he's facing death row right now. He's potentially going to be executed. What's going to be better for me, right? So he comes to a conclusion, if I am to live in the flesh, that means living as Christ, follow the argument, means fruitful labor for me. That which, what, that yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. Verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. You see how much his brother loves Jesus. For that is far better. Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh. Second thing that helps us understand what does it mean to live Christ. First is fruitful labor for me. You could underline that if you do that in your Bible. The second is that to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. If I stay alive, it's more beneficial for you. 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. The third thing you could underline is for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Folks, for Paul to declare to live is Christ, Jesus becomes the meaning and the goal of life. He shows us what that looks like in these verses. To live is Christ for Paul is not a cute slogan. It's a truth that propels Paul to act. Paul is not simply a philosopher. He is that and a great one indeed. But he's also a practitioner. His ambition moves him to action. Paul's ability to say for me to live is Christ means selfless service for the good of others. Two statements that he wrote there. Fruitful labor, verse 22, and the progress and joy in the faith. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. It means the progress and the joy in the faith for you. Paul's life, people, is devoted to producing in others the same cherishing of Christ and the same desire that he has to honor to Christ that defines him. Right? That ambition that keeps Paul going, that keeps him from being stopped, that brings purpose and meaning to his life, doesn't just stay. It's not just a private, personal ambition. Right? Instead, the result is, is that it moves him to share it with others around him so that they likewise can progress and have joy in their faith. This fruitful labor is defined by Paul as the progression and the joy of our faith. That's what it means for Paul to move forward, is to spread this ambition so that other people likewise can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Folks, if this is our ambition, I just, I mean, the title of the message, if you haven't figured it out already, is Living Christ. I think it's in your bulletin. Living Christ. Christ. When I think about what we are trying to do as a church, specifically here at Parkview East, this side of town, what we are trying to do, our strategy for growth, we want to see, I think of the, the children's song we sing here at school sometimes, Deep and Wide. Deep and Wide. Give me the song, okay? Deep and Wide. When I think about what we want to see happen here as a people, as a movement, is we want to see that song become our reality. That we would grow deep Okay, that we would grow deep. And when I say deep, what I mean is your relationship with Jesus. That this, this truth would become your truth. 
That as you think about how is your life defined, that you would say, for me, to live is Christ. And the wonderful riches and amazing realities that come with that. That we would grow deep in our affection and our love for Jesus. But that we would also grow wide. That that ambition that we have, that purpose, that passion to bring honor and glory to him, to have all of our life defined by him, would also be spread out for the good and the progress and joy of other people in the faith. That numerically we would grow. That we would take this amazing, amazing thing that we have discovered and and rather than keeping it for ourselves, that we would open-handedly share it with the world around us. If somebody were to say, say, how do you plan to grow Parkview East? Two words, living Christ. Living Christ. That's how we plan to grow as a people. That's our growth strategy. It's pretty complex, right? It isn't. It's wonderfully simple. It's wonderfully simple. And for the person who lives Christ, this radically transforms the way you view your life as an employee or an employer. Right? It radically informs and changes and alters the way you view your workplace. If you have given yourself to Christ and you want to bring honor to him and you want to live Christ, it will radically transform the way you live in your neighborhood. The, the way you live and love your neighbors, the people that live next to you. If you live for Christ, it will radically inform and shape the way you operate as a student at the university, in a high school, junior high, elementary, wherever you're at. This reality will shape the way you walk through those halls. If Christ is placed at the center of your life and is the source of all of your life, it will radically transform it. The the way that we build friendships, the way we operate within our family structure, right? It is not for us. It's interesting that the passage just before, Paul made mention of those who had selfish ambition, who would preach the gospel out of selfish ambition to bring affliction to him. Paul's showing us another way, a completely other way. And that way is selfless giving of yourself for the progress and joy of those around you. That's what it means to live Christ. Now, this morning we have a a guest who's here, and we always have to think practically How does this reality affect and shape us? And so I just want to give you, last week we shared one, the Sudanese party, which ended up being canceled due to weather. So hopefully nobody showed up at that. Okay. Uh, But this morning we're going to give you another opportunity. And this is uh, Brett. I'm going to have Brett come on up. And Brett is a representative from Safe Families. And Safe Families is an organization. He'll tell you more about it. But a number of you volunteer with Safe Families. Um, Faith Academy has been blessed by their ministry in the past. Um, both by allowing Safe Families to be a blessing to some of the families that we work with through the ministry here in this building, but then also um, by allowing us to come alongside and partner with you too. So I'm going to give you five minutes, share a little bit, 35, five. We'll go to five. We'll go down to five. Four? You want four instead? I can keep going. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I actually do a little auctioneer talk here. So one, I just want to, so you guys are so Christ, but also, two to reach out into our community 
to live Christ together because this is not easy work. And so Safe Families is a ministry that seeks to provide a platform for the church to live Christ out and live Christ alongside one another. And so I have a lot of information in the back of the table. I, I don't want to go into to all of that. Um, but I, I, I want to tell you that in all of this, all that Doug is preaching to you this morning is not just a good thing. It's not just to, 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 to make sure that we're living the Christian life, right? But this is actually for your joy and the joy of the world. The church is the hope of the world. And what we have to offer is exactly what the world needs. And so we need this, right, as, as, as sinners who need grace. And so we want to respond to that, to what God has done for us through Christ, and go out and share the mercy, the love, the grace, the forgiveness, and ultimately the joy with the world. And so Safe Families, along with a million of other ministries that you can do, is offering the church the opportunity and the platform to do this together for our joy and the joy of the world. So, again, I'm going to be hanging out. I can, I'll go into more details. I can use this pitch to, to really define what Safe Families is, but, but I just want to stir us up, as, as Doug has done to me, just to go out together to do this for the joy of our city and for the joy in our hearts, right? Uh, and just real quickly, two real practical things. There is a training coming up in February at Parkview North Campus that if you guys are interested in learning more about the ministry or just wanting to jump whole hog, uh, check that out. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet. You can sign up and see flyers. And then, two, there's a campus-wide Safe Families Volunteer Meeting in March 11th. I think this is where you guys all have your uh, campus-wide meeting for members. And that's just an opportunity to, one, learn, I guess, a little bit more about Safe Families here in Parkview across campuses. Uh, but, two, to connect and talk about how can we do this together again for the joy of the city and, and for our joy as well. So, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, real quick, mission, give me the mission statement of Safe Families. Mission statement. Yes, come alongside families in crisis through caring for their children so that we can help keep families together. Awesome. Thanks, Brett. Yes. So Brett's got a table out back there on your way out. If you want to stop by and get more information, you can, I would invite you to do that. Um, the other way that we're going to just practically apply some of this right now is um, by giving thanks. Um, ultimately for what God has allowed us um, to participate in. And, and the way that he has brought us into the family, so to speak, and, and given us meaning and purpose, ultimately, is by sending his son to die on the cross for us. And so this morning, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and, um, and be obedient to what he has called us to do, to remember that great sacrifice, that, that selfless act um, for our joy. And so uh, we have tables. There's a gluten-free option in the back there, I believe. I think usually it's back there. Hopefully it is. Um, and then we've got two tables on the side. And I'm going to read this and pray. And, and if you're here this morning and you are not a member of Parkview East, but you are a follower of Jesus, you've put your hope and trust in him, um, then we would invite you to gather around this table with us. And if, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, then I, just, I would just say, hey, there's no problem in just waiting back, you know. Um, this is specifically for those who have professed faith in Jesus. And so I'm going to read this, I'll pray, and then um, we'll kind of help ourselves there. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, Lord, I just thank you for, um, as we consider, Lord, what you did to bring us into your family. Lord, I pray right now as we proclaim your son's death, that you would remind us, Father, of who we are in Jesus. Lord, that you would renew our love and affection for Jesus, Lord. And that uh, you would allow us to just follow in his footsteps and live a life, Father, a singular ambition to live Christ, Lord, to be obedient to that call. We ask these things in your name. Amen.